So welcome to our first class, Women uh, of the Hebrew Bible is sometimes how I've taught this class, but you know, times they change and there's a lot competing for people's attention. So um, it is now Real Housewives of the Bible <laughs> that we're going to call this class. And um, I'm very excited to teach this year at KI. It's one of my favorite uh, subjects to teach. I've taught it at the college level. I've taught it at the, at, to synagogue communities. I've taught it um, to different faith communities. It, it's a fantastic thing to help open the stories of the women of Torah. Um, because I think a lot of times in our Western culture, we have certain um, ideas about what a patriarchal culture and its literature would have produced about women. And I think, uh, in particular, the way these texts have been used not necessarily by uh, the, the Jewish tradition, but by the Western world, um, hasn't always been uh, empowering of women or flattering uh, or in any way positive. So what I'm here to do is help uh, us understand these stories in their original setting so that we can understand them better in their own context and also to open them up for us today to see what the stories of these amazing women um, say to us as folks just trying to navigate the waters of everyday life at 2012 America. 13. 13. Oh my gosh, see? <laughs> we are so busy we don't even notice when the calendar changes. Some of us are still trying for 2012. Fif- oh, 57, what I just wrote on my check, 57. So we are going to start tonight. Uh, The reason I'm seated is because we have this microphone so that this is going to be a podcast available to anyone who wants to listen to it. So if you would like to come to these classes but feel like, oh no, I missed one, did I miss something? You can listen to it on your computer. You can listen to it on your smartphone, on your iPod, on your iPad, (laughs) depending on your level of skill with all of these things. Um, But we are ready to help you figure out how to access it. At the very least, you can go to our website and you'll find the recording of this class and every class that we do in the series on your computer, on your desktop or laptop. So um, we're doing three to begin with, but my hope is there will be enough interest that we continue. Uh, There are certainly enough housewives of the Bible to keep us going for years if we do three at a time. So I'm very happy to have all of you who've learned with me before and those of you who are new to learning this kind of material um, know that we're going we're gonna to have a wonderful time together and that if you've never looked at Torah text before, terrific. And if you've looked at it a lot, I hope that you'll find something uh, of interest here. The greatest compliment I could get is that one of my young people from here at KI has chosen to come now that she's a young adult, like voluntarily, I'm assuming, (laughs) voluntarily come uh, to class tonight. How amazing it is that you as a community have raised up young people who are so uh, ready to engage with uh, Jewish learning that they come out of their own free time uh, of a Wednesday night. So we're going to begin tonight with uh, one of the housewives of the Bible. I thought maybe a good place to begin is the beginning. So guess who we're going to study tonight? Sarah. Ah! It's so Jewish. We had three answers. <laughs> All confidently and at the same time. We're going to begin tonight with Eve. We're going to begin our study with Eve. So, of all the women of the Bible, 
I believe Eve probably gets the worst rap. She is in um, a lot of Western thinking and in Western tradition, and also it's there in Jewish tradition. Um, she is the one responsible for a lot of suffering in the world, bringing a lot of suffering in the world. And um, if we want to really state it uh, the most emphatically, that she's responsible for bringing death and sin uh, into the world. And that is linked a lot of times with female sexuality, uh, unfortunately. Right? So this is a link that was made early and that has been uh, pretty prevalent in our Judeo-Christian society. So what I would like to do is to have you think for a minute of the whole creation narrative that comes before Adam and Chava, Adam and Eve, are created, and just kind of put yourself in that place of remembering the beginning of Bereshit, beginning the, rem- the remembering the beginning of creation, so that there's this void, there's this something, there's darkness, there's waters, there's whatever... Whatever that means, we don't know exactly what that means because it doesn't exist anymore. And so there's some kind of ooze out of which everything's going to emerge. And there's the Ruach Adonai, the, the spirit, the wind, the breath of God hovering over the depths, the waters. And out of that emerges our creation narrative. So a lot of us can imagine the seven days of creation and all of the things that have to happen in order for there to be the created world. And then on the uh, last day, what gets created, of course, is humankind. Right? So we get, I mean, the sixth day is humankind. The seventh day is Shabbat. Rest, renewal, uh, a cessation of creation. So when so we, we've, we've kind of got it up to there. And then we have this interesting story of two human beings. And then we have something about a snake, something about a tree in the garden. We're in the setting of Eden. We get some do's and don'ts. And then we get a narrative. We get a story about what happens with those uh, folk that are created. So what I would like to do is just set this a little bit in the ancestor literature of our people. Because often we take this story and say, okay, this is the Hebrew scriptures. This is the the creation narrative of the Jewish people, of the Israelite culture from the ancient Near East. And we think, okay, why is there a tree? Why is there a snake? What does that mean? Why is there this one and then that one? And then why are they out of dirt? And So we just imagine that this is out of nowhere But this is not out of nowhere, this narrative. This narrative is a very, very, very old narrative. What we have in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 is the newest take on a very old narrative. So what that means is that the folks who put together the Genesis that we have, the the narrative as we have it, the text as we have it, are not working from nothing. They are working from lots of traditions in the region that date back millennia before the Israelites come on the scene. But we don't know those. As Jewish readers, as Western readers, we have no idea what those are. We only know Genesis. So let's put ourselves in the context. Julia, where are you? 
Um, let's put ourselves in the context of the ancient Near East, and let's look at our parent traditions, those traditions that came before the Israelites, but in the neighborhood of the Israelites. One of those is Sumeria. And in Sumeria, what we have is the goddess who gives birth to the world. I'm going to put these up so you don't have to worry right now about seeing them. Um, in Sumeria, we have the goddess who gives birth to the world because in cultures predating patriarchy, what we have are matrifocal cultures, right? They trace themselves through the line of the mother for inheritance and for where someone lives. They are matrilocal. They are matrilineal. So it all goes through the line of the mother. And in those cultures, generally, creation was understood to be a process wherein the goddess somehow becomes pregnant. There's lots of ways that happens. Uh, and births the world into existence. Parthenogenesis. She herself somehow has the universe, the cosmos, come out of her herself. Then there's usually a generation of gods and goddesses or some other folk among which there's a lot of struggle. And out of that chaos, there has to be made some order for us to have the world that we have now. That's the, the kind of creation mythology that's in the region before we see ancient Israel come on the scene. In Sumeria, the way they visioned the goddess was as the great mother serpent of heaven. And the God was the Lord of the tree of truth. One of our parent traditions. Babylonia. The goddess was known as the divine lady of Eden. And the goddess of the tree of life. She is attended by a serpent who guards the fruit of immortality. Assyria. In Assyrian tradition, the mother womb and the creatress of destiny made male and female humans out of clay. Quote, in pairs she completed them. And in Egypt, the goddess was visioned as a serpent and it was the hieroglyphics uh, symbol for the world, the serpent. Right? It meant the goddess and then it meant the entire world. In Hittite tradition... Life itself is imaged and is talked about in the literature as Hawa. What's important to know is that this W in ancient Near Eastern language, including Hebrew, the W and the V sound were interchangeable. The V and the W sound are interchangeable. So where you see a W in ancient Near Eastern language, it can easily mean a v in Hebrew. So what is this in Hebrew? Chava. Chava. Who's Chava? Eve. In Persian, Chavov means the earth itself. In Armenian, um, again, Chava is the mother of all the living. Iconography of the ancient Near East has... Uh, uncovered through archaeology, the goddess creating the human being. Behind her is a serpent coiled around an apple tree. And in these uh, ancient Near Eastern stories, 
in some of them, Adapa or Adamu. Sound familiar? <laughs> Adam oh. is denied eternal life by a God who is hostile, who's competing with humanity and doesn't want humanity to live forever. All right, so Julia, would you put these up around the room so that we remind ourselves that we are not talking about a story that evolved in a vacuum. What you've heard in all of these ancient Near Eastern traditions are the elements of our own creation story. Was there a chronology to what you presented or were they going on all at the same time? Or? Some of them are simultaneous. Some, if you look at Babylonian and Mesopotamian um, literature, some images are older than others. The matrilocal um, cultures had a goddess figure that was supreme. As it goes on and shifts to a patriarchal culture, the goddess is often cut in half, and half of her body makes the upper part, the heavens, and her the other half of her body makes the earth. Right? She must be destroyed, and and uh, that is what enables this world to happen. Those are later traditions. So when we look around the room, what we see is that we, we don't exist, like I said, in a vacuum. This is not literature that's created something out of nothing. So in the ancient Near East, if you're going to talk about creation, you got to have the whole mother serpent business. That's got to factor in there somehow. You have all these references to the tree of truth, the tree of life. There's a tree. There's something about a tree. And it has to do something either with truth or with eternal life. There's some kind of power to this tree. Um, and you've got this idea of the couple that's created out of clay. And certainly this idea that Chava is tied to life. Chava is tied to being the mother of all the living, is tied to the earth, is tied to life. So the question for us in looking at our text, at looking at our Genesis text about Chava, and we have two of them uh, that are different takes on that story. In looking at the story of Chava, we have to place it in its context. But what we're interested in is what did the Israelites do to reconstruct that tradition? Right? So what was the reconstructionist take of the Israelites on this ancient Near Eastern mythology? So... When we talk about the serpent, when we talk about uh, the serpent having been a symbol of the female uh, deity, why the serpent? Any ideas? Freud. <laughs> Freud? Well, it's a classicness. Okay. So goddess as penetrator, as having a penis, as being able to do parthenogenesis. Okay. Other ideas about why the snake? Well, this, this story of Lilith, how does that kind of enter in? Because I know that she's part of this whole situation as well. She is a rabbinic creation. So she's post-biblical. Okay. She's not in the Bible story. They, the rabbis read her into the Bible story. And when we look at the Bible story, I'll show you where and why and how. Mm-hmm. Serpents often a circle of, of completion. On mm -hmm. The idea of being whole and complete within itself, self-contained. 
Snakes are cunning. Snakes are cunning. Where do you get that notion from? What happens to a snake? It sheds its skin. They molt, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're in the ancient world and you're looking at something that takes its entire covering, its whole skin off, and doesn't die, right? But but you know, is somehow renewed by that process. That's a pretty intense death symbol for death and rebirth. And in the ancient world, what all of these understandings of deity were about, how do we stay in relationship to, in proper relationship to, so that we can ensure the continuation of the renewing cycle of death and rebirth. Death in the winter and rebirth in the spring. Of the crops, of the herd, of all of the things that would keep human beings alive. Right? So this ability of the skin to uh, shed its itself in a way, its outside self, and become something new. Um, in the ancient world, the snake and the dragon symbolize the cosmic waters, the darkness, the stuff that's hidden and unformed, and in this way, you know, the murky, the murky uh, unconscious. The snake uh, disappears into a hole in the ground, but can live above ground. So it's it's this. Descent into the underworld, which is again the death, and then the ascent back up into the realm of the sun and of life and of uh, renewed life. In the ancient world, there was a time where the king had to die a ritual death in the winter and then was resurrected and came back, and that is what ensures the fertility of the crops. This, of course, uh, in Christianity becomes the death and resurrection. This is not a new idea. This is an old idea in the region of the, the need for the death of the king and the rising of the king. So this is the setting in which we look at our narrative. Let's go to Genesis 1. You have your Bibles. We're going to compare Genesis 1 to Genesis 2. Because they are two different narratives about the creation. We're not going to look too much in depth at the creation narratives themselves. Because we'll be here all night. Which is fine with me, but probably not with you. And we are going to look... We're going to remember Genesis 1 as being the narrative that most of us are most familiar with in terms of how does creation happen? You ask any of our kids, right, how does it happen? And they will tell you that on the first day this happened, the second day this happened, the third day, and it goes in progress from, right, kind of earth and land and then the, the bodies of the sky and the sun and the moon and then the plants and then the trees and the animals and then human beings. So there's a progress through the six days of creation. Um, although what I love about our tradition is that we call it uh, the seven days of creation. Right? The, uh, creation is not complete without Shabbat. Shabbat is not something outside of creation. Shabbat is not something extra. Shabbat is not a vacation. Um, between the real workings of the world. 
Shabbat is part of creation. It's the seven days of creation includes a time to stop and, and be in relationship to what is created, right? To reflect on what is created. So let's look at chapter 1, verse 27. Genesis 1. You all have different Bibles. Ah. Page 10 in the Eitzchayim, the red book, as we call it, and page 8 in the what? Green book. I'm in the brown, which is page 2. Smaller print, I can tell you for sure. So, who would like to read chapter 1, verse 27 of Genesis? And God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created male and female. He created them. God blessed them and God said to them, Be fertile and increase of the earth and master it, and rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and all the living things that creep on the earth. God said, See, I give you every seed-bearing plant that is upon all the earth, and every tree that has seed-bearing fruit, they shall be yours for food. And to all the animals on the land, to all the birds on the, of the sky, to everything that creeps on the earth, in which there is the breath of life, I give all the green plants for food. And it was so, and God saw that he had made them and found it very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Okay. So what does God say in verse 26? And God said, people turning the page, Vayomer Elohim, na'ase adam b'tsalmenu, kidmotenu, beredenu vidga'at hayam. And God says, let us make Adam. Okay, so first of all, I'm going to argue that the translation Adam as man, as incorrect. It is incorrect. According to my teacher of blessed memory, uh, Dr. Tikva Freimerkensky, Adam, what is Adama? Earth. Earth. We just got told, Adam was created, and what is Adam's gender? It says male and female. So Adam does not mean man as we think of man in the English language, meaning male, right? Adam means at best, at this point, <laughs> okay, I like wrestling better. Why do I like wrestling better? Because it has earth in it. If we're gonna stay, if we're gonna stay with English, it's human. If we're gonna go with what's closest to what the Hebrew means, it is most certainly earthling, right? Something created from the earth of the earth, and we are told very clearly that it is made in God's image. Yes, in the image of God, God created it. In Hebrew, 
Him is gender neutral, often, because Hebrew is a gendered language. You must pick him or her, and if you're going to use the neuter, it's him. Does that make sense? Yes. Unless you're talking specifically about a she or a female, the neuter is him in Hebrew. Therefore, it is completely accurate to read, and God created the earthling in God's image. In the image of God, God created it. Male and female, God created them. What is the first response of God to this it slash them? God blessed them. God's response to the creation of earthling is to bless the earthling, them, and say, be fertile and increase, fill the earth, and I'm going to argue with anybody who interprets this in English as master it, um, and rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and all the living things that creep on earth. In Hebrew, this is much more a sense of being responsible. Being As the top of the chain, the responsibility for creation comes under human purview. Right? So this, it's all now under the human's domain. Not to do with as one pleases, but to, to have it be under the human's responsibility. <laughs> My question is, would um, Rabbi Toich, if he were teaching this, um, <laughs> give the same type of translation? Rabbi Toich, absolutely. Okay. You want to pick another rabbi? I might say, no way. Okay. <laughs> rabbi Toich, for all, sure. All right. For sure. Um, since God said, by the way, I didn't see anything about making a man out of clay in here, but uh, God said, be fertile, but don't eat of the tree of knowledge because... Whoa, 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 We are going to stay with Genesis 1. Okay. We're at Genesis 1. This is why I want to do this. This is exactly why. You've heard nothing about clay, but you will in Genesis 2. But what about ribs? Genesis 2. <laughs> Genesis 1 has nothing about dirt, has nothing about a rib, has nothing about yet a tree. Nothing. But we think of that as the definitive Jewish Israelite narrative of creation. That's why you're here. All right, so... We're going to look at, and you're going to remind me if I don't get to it, when we're done with the Genesis 2 part, you're going to say, okay, but what about Lilith and Genesis 1? Okay, so if I don't get there, you tell me. All right, so, so God bless them, be fertile and increase, and like that's a good thing in a world where if you don't have a lot of people, your people goes away, right? In that region, there's a lot of war, there's a lot of uh, competition for resources, which means people are always moving around. And if your people can't defend their territory, if they can't defend themselves, they're gone. So being fertile and increasing is critical to the survival of the people. Now that the Jewish birth rate is officially below zero, there are those in our community who say, Elliot Dorf here in LA, the conservative rabbi, amazing thinker in our tradition, says that uh, he has 
they've made a halachic uh, request that every Jew consider having another child past what they thought they wanted. We're back to this. I just find it very interesting that we're back to this. To be fertile and increase in order to survive, we're now facing that question again, which is a very interesting other class that we're going to do someday. Okay. So, God says, see, I give you every seed-bearing plant that's upon the earth and every tree, blah, 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 blah. It's all yours for food. And the animals, they all have everything that's growing as green plants for food. And it was so. God saw all that God had made and found that it was? Good. It was more than good. What was it? It was very, very good. good. Very good. It was tov. It was oh, everything else was tov. Everything else was good. The creation of earthling? Tov me'od. Very, very good. All right. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Then we get the beginning of Kiddush. Vayichulu HaShamayim, chapter 2, verse 1. Baha'aretz. Yes? Familiar? We get the completion of creation, which is the first paragraph of our Kiddush on Shabbat. And then we're going to go to the... Next text dealing with this whole creation of human business, which is chapter 2, verse 4. Somebody read from there. This is the chronicle of heaven and earth when they were created on the day God made earth and heaven. No shrub of the field was yet on the earth. No plant of the field had yet sprung up. For Adonai had not poured rain down upon the earth, and there was not a soul to till the soil. Uh, though a flow would emerge from the earth and water would surface of the soil. Then Adonai fashioned the man dust from the soil and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life so that the man became a living being. To the east, Adonai planted a garden in Eden, setting the man there whom God had formed. Then out of the soil, Adonai grew trees, alluring to the eye and good for fruit. And in the middle of the garden, the tree of life and the tree of all knowledge. A river went forth from Eden to water the garden. From there it divided and became four branches. The first was named Pishon. That one flows around the land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is fine. Bedillium is there, and onyx stone. The second was named Gihon. That one flows around the land of Cush. The third was named Tigris. Tigris, the one that flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. So Adonai took the man, placing him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. God, Adonai, then commanded the man, saying, You may eat all you like of every tree in the garden, but the tree of knowledge you may not eat. And the moment you eat it, you shall be doomed to die. Then Adonai considered, it is not good that the man be alone. I will make him a helpmate. So Adonai formed the wild animals and the birds of the sky out of the soil and brought the man to see what he would call each one. And whatever the man called it, that became the creature's name. The man gave names to every domestic animal and to the birds of the sky and to all the wild animals, but for himself, Adam found no helpmate. 
Then throwing the man into a profound slumber so that he slept, God, Adonai, took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in that place. Now Adonai built up the rib taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, This time I am bone of my bone. This time I, I, this time I, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Let this one be called woman, for this one is taken from man. So it is a man that will leave his father and mother and cling to his wife, and they become one flesh. Okay, this is a different narrative than we just had. We just had Zahar Nekevah, male and female, God created Otam, them. Eden, everything's already created, like step by step by step, and then the creation of male and female earthly, right? They're told they can eat whatever they want of all the plants of the earth, of all the vegetation, as will the animals. Now we get Genesis 2, which comes along and says, okay, so once the heaven and earth were finished, and all of that, and the seventh day got finished, then we get this Introduction to another creation narrative at verse 4. When God made heaven and earth, when no shrub of the field was yet in it, so nothing had been created yet. No shrubs, no plants, no nothing. That tells us when another creation narrative. Except some of the animals were domesticated animals. <laughs> so are these two, two separate stories? Two separate stories. Two separate stories contained in our our national history you've got 12 tribes who are loosely confederated if you want to bring them all into the the new nation of Israel it's now going to be a nation state and you're going to print the literature of that nation you better have the civil war and the war of northern aggression <laughs> you'd better refer to it both ways and you'd better tell both stories or both parts of your new nation state are not going to buy the history. They're not going to buy the history book. There are variant traditions in the loose configuration of tribes that come together eventually to make the nation state of Israel, of ancient Israel. And both of their narratives have to be here. For the rabbis, that's not going to work. You can't have seams between two very different narratives. You have to make them work together. You have to harmonize them and say this is one narrative, because of course there's only one way any of this could have happened, because this, this is actually how it happened. So if you have Zahar Rautam, that male and female God created them in Genesis 1, Genesis 2 comes along to say God takes some clay and forms it into Adam, into an earthling, and breathes the breath of life into that earthling. It's only earthling, right? That's all we got. And then all these other animals come to be, and in that process of having all of these other creatures come to be, what comes to be an issue is that this earthling has no what? Ha, ha. Who said partner? <coughs> Who said partner? Linda, why did you say partner instead of helpmate? <laughs> well, 
the first earthling created wasn't called man or woman. It was just an earthling. Adam. Adam. Well, and um, I'm not sure why, but I mean. Okay. So there's there's nothing found for this Adam that is Ezer Kenegdo. Ezer. What's Ezer in Hebrew? Ozer. Helper. Ezer Kenegdo. What's Neged? That's Negev. Very good. Negev. A little different. One consonant makes all the difference. Neged. Against. I can't spell. So, Ezer Kenegdo. There was not found among all the creatures made a helper against or facing Adam. What do you think when you think helper? Next to. Subservient. Who said subservient? That, that's our, when we think helper, we think aid. <laughs> Assistant, meaning somehow subservient. Not an equal. Not an equal if we're talking about a hierarchy. But the word mate is in there too. But the word what? Mate. Which is not in the Hebrew. That is in the English. But I think the reason for putting that in the English is because it is obvious that it does not mean Adam needs an assistant. Right? I guess that's why I said partner. Because. As opposed to helpmate. Because that is the correct instinct. That is the instinct of the Hebrew narrative. Because what is God called when we get to Esaenai Elahari Me'ayin Yavo Ezri? I will lift up mine eyes to the hills from whence comes my help. Huh? From whence comes my assistant? <laughs> Who said that? Lovely. Exactly. From whence comes my help with a capital H. Who is helper referring to there? God. It is very clear that Ezer, Ozer in Hebrew, as a role, is the role of someone who has more strength or something and offers it to someone in a, in a I don't know the weaker is the right word, but a less able. A less able position. I lift up my eyes to the hills from whence comes my Ezer. It means I need something that I don't have without that presence coming to me and offering it to me. And that that's a good thing, and that, it is, that it's used of God means that it can't be assistant. Like some, some way, meaning lesser in the hierarchy. It can't. So that means that ezer has to mean help in somehow a kind of good and appropriate and powerful way over against or facing a dumb. What does that mean? What does that suggest to you? Equal and opposite. Equal and opposite. Okay. What, what, and what does that mean that he didn't have before that? Facing someone. You're alone. Opposition. 
Now you're facing someone. What, is that, what does that create that wasn't a there before? A reflection, a companion. Relationship comes into existence. God understands that what's missing for Adam is relationship, is opposition in a good way, in a bad way, mirroring who we are, which God knows, I have a daughter who's my clone. It's not always a pleasant thing <laughs> to have ourselves mirrored, right? To see ourselves in the eyes of somebody else. To see what we do, what we cause in the world. This is what God understands is lacking for Adam. But we have a problem if we have to make Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 be the same story of what actually happened. So what do the rabbis say? Genesis 1, male and female, Barautam, God created them. But now we've got man going to sleep and Chava, Eve, is created out of man's side. Then it must mean, who was the female in Genesis 1? Not Eve, obviously, or, or these don't work. So it must be somebody else. Who was it? Lilith. So for the rabbis, there was someone before Chava. There was someone before Eve. And she's not there anymore. Why is she not there anymore? She was equal. She wanted equality. She challenged Adam in a way that was inappropriate. Some of the rabbis interpreted it. She wouldn't have children. But she, oh, she goes on to have children, trust me. What, what, do you call, what is her name again? Lilith. Lilith is a night owl. And where does it say that that's her name? Hmm? Where does it say that that's her name? It does not say that here. Oh, okay. The rabbis read that back in to I the text. Um, and so, because you got to deal with a variant of between one and two that doesn't work otherwise. So there had to be somebody else who was the, the female in the first one. It is Lilith. And she becomes a demon. She's, she's exiled from Eden. And she becomes a demon. And there's lots of interesting stories about what she does. Uh, and what her motivations are, and uh, and there's a lot of. I mean, she's demonized completely. And the feminist Jewish magazine, what is its title? Lilith. Why? Because we're not taking her back. Because we're taking her back. We're pissed off. We are reconstructing the story of Lilith, who was in her power, who claimed her place, who got kicked out for it. That's not a bad thing anymore for a lot of us. Well, that's what I heard that the story was that she, both Adam uh, and Lilith were created from the earth, and the, and then she wanted equal, not to be subservient or that role, and then when she was banished, then that's why Eve came from his rib to make sure that it, she would be more subservient. To right, an interpretation. Right. Certainly a normative right now, I think, Interpretation, not here in the text, mm -hmm. at all. I don't understand. What was the evidence that this Lali existed? There isn't. There isn't. It's a rabbinic imagination. There's no evidence for Lali. <laughs> but the idea that from Genesis one, where it says male and female, God created them both, and then in Genesis two, there's only Adam and Chava's created out of his sight. The is that the female is someplace else. <laughs> that the first female someplace else. But if that's a rabbinic interpretation, that's already post-biblical. Exactly. It's not here. It is not here in the biblical and interpretation. And the rabbis, so the rabbis favored men. And that's 
just how they interpreted everything and made up the myth or whatever. I, I mean, I, I don't know that I'd say favorite. I'd say the, the rabbis were men. <laughs> so Lilith, for instance, takes the night emissions of men from their wet dreams and has demons spawn, demon babies with that semen. So I, I just ha I just believe that it's how it's one way that men could transfer their own complicated relationship to their own sexuality and their own desires onto a vixen, a temptress, and, and blame her, like kind of put it on her. That, that That's why it happened to me, because Lilith was here. That's right, and so? And part of that is a sexual fantasy. Uh, I, yes. <laughs> I think it's all tied together, but I think, yes. Yeah. So I think it's less about favoring than it is about, okay, so men are writing these rabbinic interpretations. So they did what yeah, they, they did, but they did. But we're... But we're going to go back to the actual biblical text. David? So why, why can you deny the creation of Eve in, in Genesis 1 by looking at Genesis 2 and not deny that the man created in Genesis 1 also disappeared and, and had to be remade in Genesis 2? <laughs> so where only because he recurs... First, the question has been, I'm not saying it's the only question, but the question has been, okay, he's still here. He's still the first, what, but it was male and female, and now it's just male, and then she gets created. That's where the focus has been. But, but certainly one of the other questions could be, wait a minute, there's all this other stuff created, and we don't even have a human being yet, and all of a sudden the, the human is plopped in the garden that was our, sure, sure. Absolutely. Well, is it because of the J writer and the P writer and Betach? Of course, we have different sources in front of the final redactor of the Bible. There are different sources in front of that final editor, which we call J, E, P, and D, right? From the documentary hypothesis, which we're not going to do tonight. But um, here's another interpretation that personally. I love, if we're going to harmonize one and two, it, we can acknowledge their different texts. We can acknowledge their different traditions. But my, again, my teacher of blessed memory, Tikva Frey-Merkensky, I'm going to give you an article, uh, the introduction to her book called Reading the Women of the Bible. She was one of the most brilliant and talented scholars we had in this field. She died of breast cancer um, way too young. She was just starting to hit her stride in terms of what she would have published. So... Um, she said to me, so Amy, when you're reading these texts, you're very good at the part where we break it out and break it apart and find out where everything comes from and how they like disagree and where the sources might be. You're wonderful at that. You forget sometimes that there was a final redaction. We've inherited the final edition and that that was done for a purpose too. That was done for a reason too. And we're given that as well. So in that spirit, uh, honoring her admonition to me, um, if we're going to take the fact that they are both there together, what do we do with them? How can we read those together? I love this version. That so we have the creation of Earthling, Zachav and Ekevabahotam. God creates that Earthling to be male and female, right? Male and female. So hermaphroditic. Hermaphroditic. <clears throat> But when we confront the reality of the earthling in Genesis 2, what's made clear is that if you're hermaphroditic, 
There's no relationship. You're one, but you're not in relationship. I understood this text in a completely different way after being nine months pregnant. On Rosh Hashanah, talking about creation. Why would God move out of blissful unity into all of this craziness of multiplicity and divisiveness and differentiation and complication? Why would God do that? Wasn't it so much nicer to stay in the cosmic soup? And then I was nine months pregnant (coughs) and went, aha. Right? Because as lovely as that unity is, first of all, it gets tight. (laughs) Something's waiting to be born. And it gets too tight. It's not going to stay anymore as a possibility or something's going to die. Right? If birth, if separation doesn't happen, something potential dies. And as long as I was in blissful unity with my baby, like walking around every day, she went with me on every errand, she went with me on everything I did, there was no relationship. I wanted to know who this was. And as lovely as being together was, there was no way I could know her until she was other, separate and apart. And facing you. And facing me. (coughs) Screaming her full head off. (laughs) (laughs) So Genesis 2 is about, oh, there's no other creature that can be as their kinegdo for the earthling. And so... Let me put the earthling under general anesthesia, a kindness by God, by the way, right? A kindness. Let me put it, the, the earthling in a tardemain, a deep, deep sleep. Uh, uh, what do you, what's deeper than a sleep when you call it a... Coma. Coma. A hibernation. <laughs> Coma. Hibernation. Uh, hibernation. I can't think of the word. Um, so, so to be completely, like, under. Unconscious. And then... <laughs> Don't read it that God took Adam's rib. That's one way to interpret that word. Another word to interpret, another way to interpret that word is took Adam's side. Split Adam into Ish and now Isha. Ish, man, and Isha, woman. Now that's a meaningful designation. Before it was Adam. Earthling. Now it's Ish and Isha. He can only be Ish once there's Isha. Right? Now there's designation about who they are to each other. And now they can face one another and be in relationship to each other. Okay. We've just gotten to her creation. We have a long way to go. So let's go to chapter 3, verse 1. Actually, start at um, 2.25. Then the man said, This one at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman. For from man she was taken. Hence, a man leaves his father and mother and clings to his wife. So that they become one flesh. All right, 25. The two, page seven. Here we go. Now 25. Sorry, sorry. No problem, no problem. The two of them were naked, the man and his wife, yet they felt no shame. 
Now the serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild beasts that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say, You shall not eat of any tree of the garden? The woman replied to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the other trees of the garden. It is only about fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden that God said, You shall not eat of it, touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, You are not going to die, but God knows that as soon as you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will take divine, you will be like divine beings who know good and bad. When the woman saw that the tree was good for eating and a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable as a source of wisdom, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they perceived that they were naked, and they sewed together fig leaves and made themselves loincloths. All right. So we are told that the... Okay, the... We are told that the two of them were in a condition called what? In a... Hmm? Naked. Naked. Our room. They are naked. The vav, the vav in Hebrew can be disjunctive or conjunctive. In this case, I'm going to argue it's disjunctive. So they were both arum. They were naked. Ha'adam ve'ishto. The earthling and his woman. Velogit boshashu. But they were not, what? Ashamed. Ashamed. Embarrassed. Aware. Possibly. Let's hold on to that, Linda. Aware. Very nice. But that implies that they weren't aware, they would be embarrassed. Doesn't it? So we don't know. What we know is they're not something that we now are when we are a room in general. What makes our partner, our ezer kenegdeinu, our, our equal over and against us, is that we are accepted fully even when naked. Right? That is not the condition we are normally comfortable being. So whatever it is before the world as we know it, in this case, they were naked but not fill in the blank with something about a, a embarrassment, being ashamed, some kind of awareness. Their eyes weren't open. Their eyes weren't open. So we're going to totally go there. Now, the Nahash, the serpent, look around the room. The serpent is everywhere. In every ancient Near Eastern story of creation, you've got the serpent. So the question is, what do the Israelites do with that serpent? What's the relationship between our humans and the serpent in our case? The serpent is the most arum of all the animals. It sheds its skin regularly. It sheds its skin regularly. So the serpent is the most naked of all the animals. That is not what any translation you will find will read. What does it read? <clears throat> the most 
cunning. In some ancient Near Eastern linguistic traditions, it's about wisdom. The snake was the most wise. And if you're talking about the serpent being associated with the creatress, it would make some sense that the serpent was therefore associated with some kind of knowledge, wisdom, some kind of something that the serpent also guards ordinary the folks don't have. The serpent guards the tree of wisdom. The serpent is coiled around the tree in iconography of the ancient Near East. So was the serpent the most aware? Was the serpent the most aware? Let's keep using that as part of our mix. Couldn't this whole uh, serpent thing relate to the fact that our people thought of these serpents as false gods and therefore had to become the villain of the piece. Thank you, Davida. Oh, you're welcome, Amy. Shall I leave? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. I'll, I'll give you your check when you're in my office. Um, it is certainly one of the reasons I put these up. I think we cannot read the story without understanding um, that it was a reference to a deity in the parent traditions of ancient Israel that ancient Israel is coming to overturn. Therefore, there's going to be not a fantastic relationship between the serpent and particularly whom? Particularly whom does the serpent relate to? Eve. Chava. So, the, the, the Nahash, the snake, the serpent, is the shrewdest, in my text, is the most arum, the most naked, the most aware, the most wise of all of the animals. We can hold all of those possibilities in our minds at the same time because Hebrew is a language of depth, not breadth. In Hebrew, the intent is not to find the absolute specific nuance of the word that you're looking for. That's not what makes it powerful. In English, is it cerulean blue or azure? Right? It, that is what makes one an elegant speaker of English and what gives it its power when you read literature and poetry. Not so with Hebrew. It is a language of depth. The more resonances you can hit on the way down, the, the, more, the richer that literature is. So we hold all of those interpretations at the same time in our mind as we read. It's the most whatever of, of all of the creatures that God had made. And God says to the woman, I mean, I'm sorry, and the serpent says to the woman, did God really say you shall not eat of any tree of the garden. <clears throat> no. All right, so first of all, who did God tell this to? Man. Right? We have no idea where woman was, where Hava was at that point, in terms of the instruction, what you can do, and what you can't do. But here, the Nahash is setting it up. Did God really say, you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? What's already the issue with what the Nahash says? This is not what you really say. <laughs> God obviously did not say you can't eat of any tree of the garden. Obviously, we just got told that, that the humans could eat of any tree, except 
One. So she answers, the woman replied to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the other trees of the garden. It is only about fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden that God said, you shall not eat of it or what? Touch it. Touch it lest you die. Except that back in one, God says that I give you all of every seed bearing plant that is on earth for food. Correct. So when we get a prohibition, what's the prohibition? God's contradicting him herself. So we have, we've admitted, we have a contradiction between Mm -hmm. Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Mm -hmm. But if we stay with what God does say, what does God say? Except the tree of knowledge. Aha. So. The knowledge of the world. Aha. So you may eat of everything except what? The tree, the knowledge of good and evil. What does Chava say she's not allowed to eat from? The middle one. The tree in the middle. (laughs) (laughs) Talking about the middle. Don't you think this is female stereotyping? So, is it female stereotyping meaning what? Meaning that we're all, you know. Can't follow directions. We said we're can't like understand blonde. the directions. So we're all blonde. So we're all dumb. Dumb. Blonde. Blonde. We can't figure it out. <laughs> Just as I was just now. <laughs> Where would she. I, I would say absolutely if God had said to her, you shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of the. Blah, 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 blah. Then I would say to you, absolutely. But she's, That's getting, getting, her, no she's getting her her information from Adam. Right. Where is Chava getting her information from? The serpent. The serpent just asked her a question. She answered with knowledge she already had. We don't know. From Adam. We don't know where Chava gets her information. It wasn't from him. She wouldn't listen to him. <laughs> so did she overhear God talking to Adam? In which case we have to wonder about her ability to take the divine word and hear and understand. Or Adam's ability to transmit the information. Or Adam's ability to accurately render what God said. And so clearly there's something missing, like the acknowledgement of which tree it is. Now maybe she's just leaving it off because she doesn't think the serpent needs all those details. I don't know. But certainly there's something here that God did not say. She says, we are not allowed to eat of it or... Anything. Touch it. it, Lest we die. die. So so wherever she got her information, what does Chava say she believes to be the truth? She doesn't think that you're going to die. Right? Doesn't she say that? You're not no. going to die. The serpent. The serpent. Touch it, lest you die. Oh, and the serpent said it. So she believes, right now, as we have it, that if she what? Eats it or touches Eats it or touches the tree, she will die. What does die mean to Chava? Or to Adam, for that matter? It can't mean anything to her because she has no knowledge of death. What that means. So the prohibition already only says don't touch it and don't eat of it because if you do, it'll taste like cotton candy. <laughs> Dye, cotton candy, like what? She doesn't... It's a concept. It's a concept that does not exist. So don't because it'll turn you green. 
it'll what she, she has no idea what that means what follows the consequence that follows Amy uh-huh. It also says, at least in the English, it says that God said. She's repeating what's been told to her secondhand. It doesn't necessarily imply, at least in the English, that she believes it. She's merely repeating what she's been told. She's repeating what she... Is it fair to think, to, to agree that she believes it? Okay. That, we could argue that she doesn't necessarily believe it, but we have no reason for her to doubt what she's been told. But we have no evidence that she necessarily believes it. She said, this is what God has said. Okay. So the serpent says to her, what in response? You're not going to die. You're not going to die. But. We're not going there yet. The serpent says, you are not going to die. God knows that as soon as you eat of it, what's going to happen? Your eyes will be opened and you will be like divine beings who know good and bad. What do those words mean to her right now? Nothing. and Ray. You will know the difference between Shmei and Ray the minute you eat. Okay. For that matter, what is a divine being? You'll be like a divine being. Okay. Right? When the woman saw that the tree was good for eating and a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable as a source of wisdom. This is what she does ascertain, whether it's true or not. This is what she comes up with, right? That it is a source of wisdom. She took of its fruit and she ate. All right. So the serpent says you're not going to die. What's going to happen? What, the reason God said all of this to you is because God knows that the minute you eat that, you're going to be more like whom? God. You're going to be more like God. And, and what does that mean? What does that entail? Knowing Shmei from Ray. It also means... Shlemiel from Shlemazel. It also means that you will have certain creative powers. We don't know anything about that right now. We don't know anything about that. She doesn't know anything about that. What she knows is it's going to mean she'll know the difference between Shlemiel and Shlemazel. And that she'll be more like God. So what does she decide to do? She looks at the tree. She sees that it was good for eating. It's delightful to the eyes. And that it was desirable as a source of wisdom. So clearly, because the Nahash has said, you'll know the difference. No, actually, it's in here in the Bible. You'll know the difference between blah and blah. Forget good and evil, shmei and re, shlemiel, shlemazel. Those aren't what's important. What is, for me, what is Chava here? You'll know something that you don't know right now. I'll know something I don't know right now. Meaning, I will learn. The person person and whatever that's telling for this is afraid it will lose some power because she will do something that that entity said don't do. That is certainly what the Nachash tells her. But also I'm thinking of the analogy to a baby. A little baby doesn't know death. 
doesn't know this, doesn't know that, but the parent says when there's a little fire on wherever, don't touch, slap the hand, don't touch. The baby doesn't understand why. And that's what we're trying to understand. Does she understand death? Does she understand She's like a baby. Maybe she is a baby. These stories are written by people like us who have exactly that experience. And she's, has she opened her eyes yet? So we're going to see where that happens, right? As soon as my eyes are open. <laughs> so she eats of it because she understands, all she understands is that she's going to know something that she doesn't know now. She can't know what good and bad is and what the difference is. She doesn't even know those concepts. But she knows she's going to know something she doesn't know now. So Eve is the one who decides learning is worth the risk of whatever that's going to mean. Whatever that's going to mean, she's going to learn. You tell me what baby's ever been convinced by a potch. No, no baby I've ever known is convinced by a potch. What's the only thing that teaches that baby? Whatever the cost, they're going to learn. All right. Because that's what we're driven, that's what we're hungry for is learning. From the minute we come out, God help us over these, right? That's what we're, that's what we're hungry for is learning. Input, 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 right? So she eats. She took of its fruit and she ate. She also gave some to? Him. 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 She gave it to her man, <coughs> says the Hebrew. She gave some to her man, and he ate. You're excited about something? You're like, oh my gosh, this is something that's, that, like, we, I didn't know that we didn't know something. I didn't know that there was a possibility we could know something that we don't know right now. Oh my gosh. She eats. What is the first thing you're going to do? Share. Share. The first thing you want to do is give it to your partner, your ezin. Right? The, the first thing you want to do when you're excited about something is share it with your partner. And that's what she does. And he ate. He's her partner. He, she's a Twitter about something, right? And so he eats. Is he responsible for his own actions? <laughs> We're going to see what they think about that. So... A beautiful Hebrew word used only about the eyes. There is a Hebrew word, a verb, that is opening, which has only to do with the eyes. It's not used of the mouth or a door or a driveway. Like, their eyes were opened as soon as they eat. And what happens when their eyes are opened? Vayiru, and they saw, okay, right? Logical following verb from their eyes were opened. They saw, what did they see? <laughs> that they were <laughs> underdressed. <laughs> they were a room. More knowledge. <laughs> we learned something else. They now learned that they were. A room more like that in They gain some wisdom, some whatever, and in that awareness, 
they now understand also that they are in a state of nakedness. Arumim. They are Arum. They both were Arum. I, I want to stay with the nuance of the Hebrew. Right? What, their eyes were opened and they saw that they were Arum. Pick one of these to fill in that blank. I think all of them belong in the blank. I think so does the biblical narrator agree. Because what happens as a response to this awareness, they sew together the biggest leaves around. Have you ever seen a fig tree? Um, so they take fig leaves and they sew them together and they make themselves loincloths. They cover the parts of themselves that now they have a different awareness about that has something to do, obviously, with their sexual identity, their gender identity, their sexual identity, something about, they don't cover their whole bodies, like, oh, skin is bad. They cover their sexual organs. Their differences, maybe. They na- maybe they cover their differences. So it may cover their chest also. Yeah, she's got a point there. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was thinking. What did she say? What about the breasts? But he, I mean, he does the presumably have yeah. nipples. And, I mean, you, you could stretch it to say yeah. they're not as different. Yeah, she's small. Hers are. She's, she's small breasts. So, <laughs> but, but certainly there's a marked difference between where a loincloth would go in terms of how they are created. All right. But, and presumably they saw that before. Right, this moment, but it didn't have the import until they had some more knowledge. No. Okay. Oh, but their eyes weren't open. That's what they saw after their eyes opened. So their eyes were open in a different way. Presumably, they weren't walking around the garden bumping into trees, right? Like they, when it says their eyes were open, presumably we opened them in another way. In another way, I find it hard to believe they were created not seeing enough to get around the garden. That just makes. No sense, but um, but I think it does make sense to say they saw differently. Question of awareness. They were well, so we're gonna we're gonna hold that question. We're gonna hold that question. So Ken just said they saw that they were mortal. We're gonna hold that question. All right. So and it's a question we have to get to. So eight. Somebody read it. Eight. They heard the sound of the Lord God. Between you and the woman, 
and between your offspring and hers. They shall strike at your head, and you shall strike at their heel. And to the woman he said, I will make most severe your pangs in childbearing. Your pain shall bear children in pain. Yet your urge shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. <laughs> Go on, let's just finish it. Because you did as your wife said, oh God, uh, and ate of the tree about which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. That's why no man ever will be. Cursed be the ground because of you. By toil shall you eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles shall sprout for you, but your food shall be the grasses of the field. By the sweat of your brow shall you get bread to eat until you'll be turned to the ground. For from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. A lovely rendering of that biblical text. So I want us to just imagine for a moment a direct counter-distinction to that reading. Think of a buttery, yummy, British-accented, androgynous voice lovingly reading those very same lines. Eliana, my daughter, you will go out in the world and it's going to suck a lot of the time. It's going to be really hard. What would you have said to your infant? It's going to be really, really hard some days. It's going to be a challenge. Right? You put them on the school bus. Why do we cry when they get on the school bus? Yes, it's because they're leaving us. Okay, what are we really crying for? Happiness. No, wait, but they're going to Hold both, like the reality of the people writing and telling these stories. But let's go right now back to the text. So they they fashion these loincloths, and then they hear the sound of of Elohim wandering through the garden as God was wont to do at the breezy time of day, <laughs> and they hid from Adonai Elohim among the trees of the garden. And this is a direct indicator to the divinity that something has changed. <coughs> so God calls out to the Adam and says what? Where are you? Ayeka. Ayeka. God is the GPS. God should know where they are. God should know where they are. God set them up, right? <coughs> God set them up. You want a creation that's going to go flawlessly. You want Eden to stay perfect. You want these beings to stay in your garden forever. You do not put a tree in the middle and say, of every other tree you can eat, but of that tree... You may not. It's the only may not they've ever gotten. And you wonder, right? It's a setup. It is a complete setup. 
Rabbi Lawrence Kushner has one of the most beautiful answers to that that I've ever heard, which is because our God, the God of the Hebrew Bible, the God of the Hebrew Scriptures, is not interested in perfection. The God of the Hebrew Bible is interested in goodness. And there can be no goodness without a knowledge Choice. Of good and bad. Maybe. Without choice. Without the knowledge that there's a difference between good and evil. That they would have been creatures, they would have been maybe human, but they would not have been able to be good. Not until they have the knowledge of what's good and what's not good. What's right and what's wrong. And ironically for us, I love this as a people, we're very complicated, that the only way they could get that knowledge was... Right? For themselves. To do wrong, according to how the story is always interpreted. I don't, th I agree with Rabbi Kushner that, that this is not necessarily what's wrong at all. She understands that she now has a possibility to learn and that she will be more like God if she does that. That's what she knows, that's what she does. And out of that comes the possibility of human moral goodness. And this is the entire point of the story. And why curse her with all these ah. terrible things? Because if you're going to go out into the world and leave the garden, this is the world you go out into. This is a fact of life. This is what it's going to mean. And you have to make choices. And you're going to have to make choices, and it's going to be tough. And now there's going to be civilization. Now you're not going to just get fed from, uh, you know, you're going to now work. And she is now going to bear children. But there's now the possibility of a future, possibility of what it means to parent children. If they never ate from it, they would never have procreated. We don't know anything about what would have happened. We were talking about creating. Well, it doesn't seem that they would have. We don't. So it's very possible to say, with that eating comes a whole new set of possibilities that didn't exist before. We were talking about the need to build the population up to the critical level to sustain it, and this is just guaranteed that they will. That's right. Exactly right. yeah, I want to discuss this with an Orthodox woman who had a complete Orthodox uh, education. And her interpretation of this was that even though she was what she'd been taught, even though she was perfect and she knew she'd never have the joy of redemption if she did everything perfectly, so she purposely ate where she knew she'd get into trouble. Okay. Mm -hmm. So if the highest value you have is redemption, then that makes sense. Except redemption for us is not from sin. Redemption is from slavery. Atonement comes with sin. Redemption is not connected to sin. That's Christian. But okay, let's say teshuva. That she had no possibility of teshuva, of repentance, without having done wrong. Okay. If, if teshuva is the most important ideal for you, that makes a lot of sense well, as a reading. That in but, but, it, but if that's something that's meaningful to you, that teshuva is one of the most rich and meaningful practices that exist and realities that exist, and you can't have it without this as a precondition, okay. Right, so I want to I make sure we get to Ken's point um, that he brought up, but I want to go through the text to get there. So, so something has changed, obviously. Ayeka, where are you? This is not about where are you, right? 
in terms of you know latitude and longitude what do you say to your children when you hear a loud crash downstairs and you go in and find a bunch of broken stuff? What do you say to your child after you call their name? What's going on down there? Where are you? Eliana, where are you? It doesn't mean where are you. I know where she is. We live in a two-bedroom condo. <laughs> where are you means... What have you done? What have you done? What's going on? I already have the evidence that something's happened. When I say, where are you? What I'm asking is for you to come stand in front of me and do what? Admit it. Fess. Admit it. Fess up. Tell me the truth about what just happened. That's the only reason I'm going to call you to stand here. So God calls him out, calls him out, Adam. Where are you? Adam says, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was a room and so I hid and then God asked who told you that you were a room uh, 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 right that's when the child starts stuttering uh, so God goes on did you eat from the tree that I had forbidden you to eat from and what does the man say it's somebody else's fault Someone else made me do it. It wasn't the pie. Not only that. <laughs> it wasn't my pie. Right? But more than that. Right. More than that. Eve. I'm holding it for Eve. More than that. More than that. What's the more than that? What was the that in the first place? The Eve. It was Eve's. I'm holding it for Eve. It's Eve's pot. What's worse than that that he says? The serpent. She said, you gave me. She made me do it. No, you gave me. She made me do it, but you gave her to me. Whose fault is it ultimately? The woman you put at my side. Your fault. It's your fault. Mom, had you not had that other baby, I wouldn't have a brother. And I wouldn't be in this mess. So this is beyond blaming Chava. Adam goes to the place of blaming God. You set this up in such a way that, right? So it's God, it's Chava. So God goes to Chava to get the story and says, what is this you have done? And what does Chava say? It's somebody else's fault. The serpent tricked me. It's somebody else's fault. But she doesn't say, you put the serpent at my side. Exactly right. Mm -hmm. Exactly right. Chava says, the serpent tricked me, doesn't put it back on God. At this point, God says, okay, because you've done this, now there's going to be antipathy between you and the woman and we get the list of all of the things that are going to happen because what's going to happen why are all these things going to be true now because they have to leave they have to leave the condition of paradise they have to leave the condition of Eden they have to leave why why do they have to leave because they now have awareness because they now have awareness that they are a room, that they have some kind of knowledge they didn't have before, that they are sexually different, different, vulnerable, something, that it's not appropriate anymore, 
with this new and changed awareness to expose themselves all the time? Okay. Ken had a very interesting point earlier. He said, what they've learned is they are mortal. What they learned is that there's something about this whole business about you will die. Now there's some awareness that there is death. That they are mortal. It is very, it is very possible that their condition when they were created, I can't state this clearly enough. Looking at the text, it is very possible that the condition of Adam and Chava in the garden is that they are mortal. One of the charges brought against Eve, traditionally, is that she brings death into the world. There is no reason to believe that from this text. Why? Because of what we're going to read now. 20? Somebody read it 20? Man called his wife's name Eve, for she would be the mother of all the living. And God made outfits out of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And God then said, Look, the humans are like us, knowing all things. Now, like us, well, knowing all things. Now they may even reach out to take fruit from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So God drove them out of the Garden of Eden to work the soil from which they had been taken expelling the humans and stationing cherubim to the east of Eden and the flaming blade of a flashing sword to guard the way to the tree of life. All right. The serpent wasn't good enough. Now I have to put a sword, the flaming sword there. So, so the man names Eve Chava because now there's, there's going to be children, procreation, right, apparently, and God, in this case, I just read this, I can't help but read this as loving. That God makes them garments. They're going to go out of Eden, they're going out into the world, and God crafts for them garments and clothes them to send them out there. And God says, now that the man has become like one of us, like clearly the plural um, reference uh, left over from Canaanite polytheism knowing good and bad what if the human should stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever what does that suggest hmm? that they will be a god if they live forever now with this knowledge right um, and that they right now in this state are mortal. God's afraid of some competition here. That they're mortal, that the possibility of eternal life, of immortality existed within the garden as long as gods are like us. This is the root of separation. This is, I mean, where psychoanalysts must have a field day. And that's why they always have these gods in their offices. Not that I would know, but <laughs> and from Africa, you know, they, they look so really like they were just pulled out of the ground and they found them and they put them on their shelves. Um, and um, 
And the good God or the good parent doesn't make such a wonderful, safe home so safe that nobody wants to leave it. Well, okay, that's... Because if that happens, what's the result? Yeah. And so they, the good, the good parent, you will get hurt, you will get burned, you will get that, but you must go, you must procreate, you must have eternal life through your uh, children and children and children and children, children, children. That eternal life, just to live forever? Your, through your children and grandchildren and so on. Is now what, is now what it means. Eternal life now means through your students. Through the people you help, through the people you make an impression on. That seems to be the world that Genesis understands as the world we're, we're living in. The world, and it comes to explain how that came to be. Because there's a longing, isn't there, for it to have been different? There's a longing for, I mean, the story doesn't start with, okay, the world is hard and everybody's hard, yeah. it's all <laughs> There's a longing for a return to the undifferentiated oneness. Yeah. Where do we find that? We find it in the womb. And if we have to come out, and we do have to come out in order to exist, then where do we find it again? In, in the arms of the beloved. We find it again in the arms of the beloved, whatever that means. With infants that we hold, with our mates, with our best friends, with the beloved capital B in mystical union, right? That is where we find it again. And there's always the longing for undifferentiated union. And it's not ultimately possible in this realm of existence. It's not healthy. Because of the sword. <laughs> okay, so I'm sorry. That's right, because there's a sword. There's a turn and sword. So I um, am going to close here because I know it's hot and I know um, I want to respect your time and your time commitment. Um, I want to give you an article, like I said, the introduction to the book by, Rabbi, uh, by Dr. Tikva Frank-Rakensky. I want to thank you for taking of your time to be here. Um, I hope that you'll join us for the other two. If, again, if you can't, they will be uh, on the website under the tab Learning. You look under that tab on the KI website and you'll find um, podcasts. And under podcasts, there's the Friday morning Torah study, sermons, um, talks by Rabbi Rubin, and, uh, and this class will appear there as well. I'm going to pass this around. I'd like, if your name is not here, for you to put it here and how we can contact you in case I want to send you by email or some snail mail or whatever, other articles or... Uh, other things that come to my attention that you might find of interest. Thank you again. Thank you. Thank you. Wow.